0: Hello and welcome to the latest Guernsey Green Finance podcast. Uh, Guernsey is one of the leading jurisdictions in development of sustainable finance. And as part of that, uh, we have a podcast series uh, of which we speak to and learn from some of the leading global figures in the sustainable finance field. My name is Dr. Andy Sloan. I'm Deputy Chief Executive here at Guernsey Finance, uh, which is a promotional body for Guernsey's finance sector. And I uh, lead and, and established uh, our industry steering group, Guernsey Green Finance. And today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Daniel Wild, who's global head of ESG strategy at Credit Suisse. I'm delighted both from a uh, sort of a luminary of the, of the world I- in Daniel and also Credit Suisse and Switzerland, clearly, which is also a jurisdiction that's at the forefront of development in this arena. And obviously, in Guernsey, we're very pleased and delighted to play host to uh, a Credit Suisse branch here here on the island. So. No further ado, uh, Daniel. Um, now, our first question here. I, I, I go back to it's you know it's um, middle of the summer now, but we had our Sustainable Finance Week in June, um, and it was a conversation broadly with many different figures about finance and sustainability with private capital in the post-COVID era. Um, as we're all aware, maybe it's a bit premature to call it post-COVID, um, but I think the issue is a personal one. You know, as in you know after COVID, as it were. So, as a starter for ten. Do you mind me asking you, you what's your views of the current sustainable finance landscape?
1: Yeah, thanks, Andy, for the nice introduction. Uh, I think certainly we are still in the middle of COVID, that's clear, but already the first half of the year gave us some learnings about what happens during the crisis in terms of sustainability and also sustainable investments. As you also were referring to before the crisis, we have seen extremely strong momentum for sustainable investments. For instance, strong growth of sustainable assets, particularly maybe driven by climate change, but not only. And that was the case for the last two years or so, I would say. We had double-digit growth rates. We had a lot of commitment by large asset owners and also large uh, asset managers. And so you could say that the the Covid situation was almost a little bit like a litmus test for the for the robustness of this trend and uh, we were of course looking To that situation with a lot of attention to see what's happening and and, and there's a couple of things uh, that i think direct us towards the future and make us very comfortable about sustainable finance uh, overall and and the first of that is performance there's a couple of studies which were uh, published indicating that more sustainable firms did better during the crisis i think over 80 percent of sustainable indices outperformed their benchmark Uh, Then we also saw continued flows in sustainable strategies. And there were even some polls, for instance, by the Financial Times, indicating that investors expect that this trend would not not be stopped. So I'm very confident that sustainability and sustainable investment will continue to become the new normal. And why is that? Well, we have seen during the crisis that our society, and uh, in particular our economy, are more vulnerable than we may have. Thought. we have seen supply chain interruptions, we have seen that the risk management skills of firms have become extremely important, but we have also observed some social shortcomings more poverty unemployment more social tensions digitalizations many of these topics are covered by uh, i would say a classic esg analysis and this is why esg and sustainability get more attention and will continue to more to get more attention and, and, and some even say in that sense covid it was almost like a, a test run for the climate crisis and then I like that expression because it gives us the chance to spot these vulnerabilities and address them hopefully with more sustainable uh, investment strategies. And that's lastly, probably also the reason why a significant part of the EU funding to mitigate the current crisis are linked to sustainability. I think about one third of, of the package uh, has been earmarked for sustainable development.
0: Yeah, it's a significant sum, and it's great to see Europe um, you know, leading the way in, in that regard. Um, and, and you mentioned uh, about the studies and such, and um, I think we, we sort of, uh, um, we had our Sustainable Finance Week, and Ben Caldicott from the UK Green Finance Institute and the Oxford Sustainability Institute just published some research talking about ESG factors, and they'd actually discovered that uh, not only at the firm-wide level, um, but they'd got some data to demonstrate at the economy-wide level, that um you know, the economies that invested at a great high proportion of firms with, with good esg scores um were, were you know, performed better economically which was a very interesting line of research i thought but um your point you made the point about returns uh and it's and it, we we, we asked the question time and time again against finance and you know and it always comes back it's it's the number one issue uh for, for investors particularly in the private wealth field you know after all um, Owners of private wealth are looking at preserving uh, their capital as a minimum. So, post COVID, do you see the the environment for returns going to be a challenge? Um, I mean, how do you see the economic investment classes developing?
1: Look for me, sustainability and in ESG integration was was never really a trade-off uh, when it comes to returns. Maybe on a short-term horizon, we will see some of public funding uh, being used not for sustainable investment but for for mitigating the immediate crisis. But um, in a, in the long term, I don't think the situation w- will change for for many years. And, and I have been in the field for for 20 years, or so it was difficult to show that. Um, integration of sustainability doesn't lead to a trade-off with financial returns. But I think by now, we are quite confident that with the integration of ESG, you can at least reach uh, market returns. There's just enough evidence because we have uh, more data points, we have longer Time series, and that of course gives us a lot of trust that also going forward this will be the case. But it also depends a bit, of course, how you define ESG. When I say it will not uh, have a negative impact on returns, I mean the active integration, the systematic integration of ESG related risks and opportunities in, in, let's say, research and investment decisions and, and, and portfolio construction or in in other words in, in into the whole investment process and by the way i i think it also it works the other way around good sustainable solutions they have to be financially viable. And I know that a little bit from my work in development cooperation, uh, if you have a project or an undertaking which is not financially viable, it's it's maybe good for the moment, but in a long-term perspective, it will not survive. So I think the, the crisis now is a chance to find such sustainable and financially viable solutions and therefore investors which spot them and find the companies which do the best job, they also have an advantage on, on the investment side. And you have maybe seen them. Um, very recently, that the COVID crisis has even accelerated some of these trends. For instance, BP has announced that uh, they will faster than originally planned, like uh, reduce their exposure to fossil fuels. Uh, airlines, for instance, they get rid of inefficient older parts of the fleet. So in that sense, I think uh, investors which uh, focus or spot these opportunities, they can have uh, an advantage uh, indeed well this will only work of course is the the policy makers also play along and um with that i mean i would expect them to set the boundary conditions right so because if the boundary conditions are right then uh, i do believe in the ingenuity and creativity of the industry and also of investors to to find the right solutions And and one example would be carbon tax right so carbon tax right now is, is mostly an external cost but it's in the hands of the policy makers and regulators to make sure that these external costs uh, become relevant for uh, decisions for business decisions and in investment decisions and if that's the case uh, then we would also move in the right direction altogether with the industry and the investors alike
0: I mean, you're, you're speaking with an economist here, and it's sort of the, the holy grail of the carbon tax. We spent you know, 30, 40 years banging our heads against the brick wall shouting, it's carbon taxes. But So you're absolutely hitting an nail on the head there. And also, I tweeted about the BP thing the other day. Who would have thought that um, 10, just 10 years after Deepwater Horizon, where BP would be now, that, you know, that's just, I think it's you know, a real source of, uh, hope and inspiration to see that sort of change happening. I right. personally, anyway. Actually, I just want to pop back to you mentioned about the data points and ESG and stuff like that. And we, we had this conversation that I was hoping to come to, to uh, uh, later, but if I bring it up now, in terms of the, sustainab- the broader sustainability agenda, and actually, in particular, in the private wealth area, I've had this conversation about, about the data points for um, you know, historic-looking securities and such. But if you're looking at forward-looking... Um, larger scale you know, impact type investments along the SDGs. It's, in terms of the data points at the moment, do you, do you sense there's a similar? I, I still get the sense there's a paucity of data. Then it'd be interesting to see what your views are. Um, you know, very much at the forefront uh, from Zurich. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, if I look at the flows we see um, from private investors in, in our wealth management part of the business and also from client discussions, I would say there is uh, certainly a strong increase in the interest uh, for sustainability and as you mentioned, it, particularly for for impact right? topics that um, uh, touch our clients that uh, could, could be the oceans there could be sustainability in general, could be climate change, could be more social topics um, that 's all possible but in order to have a, a little bit a better view, we also while back we we performed in, in in our own study among our next generation clients and we found that very relevant because we are currently witnessing the biggest wealth transfer in human history, I believe, from one generation to the next one. Some people talk about 30 trillion US dollars that will be um, handed over to the next generation. So it's very relevant what what these young investors think. And uh, interestingly, the the study found that on top of the list, uh, when it came to their priorities to, to leave a legacy behind, on top of the list, it was mentioned was the positive contribution to society and, and and that indicates for me that we will definitely move into these impact-oriented investments more and more. Um, and the numbers also go in that direction right now. Or in in the study, it was found that twenty-four percent of uh, these mainly family offices and 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 private clients they already invest in impact and sustainability, but 62% are strongly interested. So together, that's over 80% and and, and the large majority of our clients which want to address that topic. Maybe they have not done it yet, but they are definitely on the journey uh, to do it.
0: Oh, that's interesting you say that, um, actually. We we did a study ourselves last year in Gersh, we did a family office uh, study, and I think it was about 20 plus family offices, about 25 billion, so it's a, a reasonable sample set. And actually, we got the, the response that 51% uh, were considering increasing their exposures to the asset class. Which I, the question I have is do, do you think that's likely today? Because we were disappointed that it was only 51% because it implied that 49% worked. But I, I, um, I suppose if you snapshot that today and uh, compare and contrast with your current data. But the other point of interest I thought was um, it, though even, the, even the leaders in the area, in terms of those investors that had put it m- most front and centers, you found on average. Uh, that the, their exposure to impact and sustainability type investing was um, broadly uh, no more than 10 15%. And, and is that your experience too? And do you see that growing as, as a share of the uh, of investments?
1: Yeah, that's probably a good figure. And, and I could imagine that this is also linked a little bit to the availability of respective solutions in the market, right? I mean, you, you have particularly on the impact side. Um, there's not so many opportunities and options available at this point in time to create impact with investments. It's strongly growing, I think, it is like a thousand percent or something uh, in, in a couple of years. Um, but it, it would be difficult to allocate all your assets um, in that direction already, which means um, also for more core allocation in, in um, diversified investment strategy, you need some building blocks or solutions that are more sustainable and more impactful than what we have in the market right now. And that's why, uh, for instance, here at Credit Suisse, we are ramping up strongly our product shelf in that direction in order to be able to offer sustainable solution across asset classes because investors don't necessarily want to turn their beliefs in terms of, of, of risk appetite and so on uh, upside down right they want to keep the global exposure they want to keep different asset classes diversification so it's our job to make sure that we have the respective building blocks to offer uh, that fit into that allocation
0: yeah interesting point about the you know the actual dearth of supply uh, uh, of i hate to use the americanism but product as you know, in terms of the actual asset class because we ourselves as jurisdictionally Deciding to sort of move upstream, as it were, uh, and look at you know trying to you know, help uh, provide product to the market uh, with our green finance initiative, you know, our regulated regime, specifically because we, you know, the same same as yourself, have identified that lack of uh, future supply. for which we'd be behind future demand, but um, anyhow, I mean, I, I, I we, could, we could go on about the supply and demand items uh, as economists, but. Um, one of the issues that you mentioned a bit already, uh, talking about the distinction between ESG investing and sustainability criteria, I've um, you know I picked up a, a conversation amongst lots of different uh, people that you know, come from different perspectives, and I see this as sort of probably sort of two different chapters of the same of the same book. Um, but do you you know do you see that on that spectrum of being in investing in sustainability, a, a distinction between ESG and sustainability? Um, I think I, I saw a is it uh, an asset manager? Zadig sort of reported in IFR the other day that they prefer UNSDGs to ESG ratings. But I, th- I see these as all different, different aspects of the same storyline. Do you mind me asking you, what's your view? You know, do you recognize that distinction? And specifically, maybe if you can maybe just talk through your approach at Credit Suisse you know, to, to the whole, um, uh, to whole, the, the whole landscape.
1: Yeah, sure. The, the whole landscape can be quite complicated. There's numerous approaches out there and uh, different terminologies and abbreviations and so on. And uh, we do like the SDG, the Sustainable Development Goals from the United Nations, as a, as a very useful and excellent framework to discuss sustainability in general. It's also something that resonates well with our clients. Uh, having said that, I mean, the topics covered in the Sustainable Development Goals, they are per se, they are they are not new, right, but they, they come across in a, in a very organized way and and what we're doing in sustainability can be nicely connected to the sustainable development goals, but also they are impact oriented and, and um, they only came out in 2015. And before that, uh, people uh, talk more about ESG. And, and I would say there is a, a differentiation. And we also use that in, in our classification and a little bit to boil down all these dozens of different <laughs> approaches to something that's understandable internally, but also for our clients, we have defined in our Credit Suisse ESG framework uh, three main pillars and two overlays and the three main pillars are um strategies which are more exclusion oriented this is usually done on, um, based on an ethical motivation based on on, on values where not necessarily the, the, the returns are in the foreground and then the second pillar um maybe the the the, the, the most strongest one right now is esg integration there we look at um, esg indicators that are financially material and have an impact on, on on the future of a firm in terms of risks or opportunities and that's also the original understanding of the pri for instance and but mainly focuses on the firms themselves so about the future of the firm we are investing in and then the third pillar or perspective is thematic and impact investing and that's the one which is mostly linked to the sustainable development goals where we also want to make sure that we have an explicit objective alongside financial returns to positively contribute to the SDGs. And, and, and it's clear many of sustainable investment strategies, they are maybe a combination of these three pillars, but you can often explain what you are doing with these three perspectives. And then we have the two overlays. One overlay is voting and engagement, um, which um, has two objectives. One is to reduce the risk in the portfolio. Uh, and the second objective is of course, again, to have a positive impact. And uh, the second overlay is transparent reporting which I believe we also owe to our clients so they know what we are doing is really what we promise
0: oh good i mean and, and doing what you promised is all, always a useful thing for clients isn't it i mean so let's uh, so. yeah, it's not just a useful thing right it even
1: becomes a regulatory necessity because yeah. uh, what we definitely so, want to avoid is greenwashing so right? it's
0: a nice and, habit uh, to pick up isn't it eh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes for sure
0: oh yeah, sorry but um, actually i just wanted to add on a bit on the esg i you mean know, and it's an a good segue i think you know to to, to to look to another continent here and um I picked up on this uh, back, you know, with um, a follower of these sort of uh, things, with mean, Al Gore with his 21st century fiduciary duty initiative through the UN. And he's done some great things in Al Gore, which is probably why he's got a Nobel Prize. Um, but, uh, I, but when I was in my regulatory days, I was I was aware of the US regulatory and strategy world looking at uh, the fiduciary duty aspects uh, in the US context. And um, sort of, you know, this whole debate about how ESG relates to the fiduciary duty and such, you know, is that, you know, you take these facts into account, it's a jolly good thing. But I did see recently, I think it was a bit before last time, June, wasn't it? Department of Labor in the US published some proposals for consultation on this about. Uh, factors and the impact. impacts. I mean, do you have any views on on this this whole sort of area of um, fiduciary duty and related to ESG and sustainability, and specifically in the in the private wealth aspects, as, as as much as the the pensions field? I think that was discussed in the US.
1: Yeah, look, it's it's an important discussion, and it has been going on for for quite some time. The debate about ESG integration in the context of uh, fiduciary duty. And um, while these papers were published, as you just mentioned, there are also other papers being published at the same time, which go in the opposite direction. For instance, by the ESFAMA, the Swiss Fund and Asset Manager Association, they published a paper stating that uh, um, ESG considerations must be part of the fiduciary duty for our clients, because they can influence the investment outcomes. And again, I think I I would refer to the three main approaches I just described, the exclusion part, the ESG integration part, and the impact part when we talk about fiduciary duty. And, And that's maybe something that was a bit missed in, in, in this the DOL paper you mentioned uh, as well. So we have to have a more differentiated discussion, I believe, but it's def- definitely an Im- important one and, and, and it boils down to the question of this pecuniary impact or what we call in sustainability the financial materiality of ESG indicators and 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 the tricky thing here is that how can we prove that something is financial mater- financially material if many of these things only happen in the future uh, take climate change for for example right climate related risks I think they are accepted by now uh, could be transition risk could be physical risks but you don't find evidence in past data that this is financially material and so from that perspective I would say A portfolio manager who really acts on behalf of clients should take ESG factors into consideration according to the best knowledge and understanding of the industry, understanding of sustainability risks, understanding of opportunities, exactly in the same way as as he or she would do it based on purely financial data. It's actually not a difference, can still be right or wrong, the final outcome, but it's at least a better informed investment decision. And and from that perspective you could ask, uh, would it not be a violation of the fiduciary duty not to consider such risks when we manage money for our clients? Uh, Maybe a a bit more difficult is the, the third perspective, the impact perspective. So would the creation of impact on top of financial returns, would that or could that also be part of the fiduciary duty? And I think to answer that question, I I will particularly look at large investors like pension funds, like as we have them in in, in Norway or in in Japan or also in in the Netherlands, for instance. And the, the concept here that's important is the understanding of universal ownership. The, these large in- investors, they are globally invested, typically highly diversified. They have a long term investment, very long term investment horizon. So in other words, they, they cannot hide. So if, if we destroy the social and environmental resources, which are important production factors for the future, not only the economies and societies will suffer, but also the financial returns will suffer. So you could say that the perspective of impact creation uh, is actually a tool to secure attractive long-term returns and therefore also can become part of the fiduciary duty of such large investors like pension funds. And lastly, with the EU regulation that's coming up, um, we are required in the wealth management area to make sure we meet client preferences Uh, not just in terms of um, risk adjusted returns but also with regard to specific client expectations for sustainability so the client preferences for sustainability and once this is written down and the client has expressed a certain uh, preference then it becomes part of our fiduciary duty to also advise accordingly and manage the portfolio in a way that fulfills these expectations
0: Mm. I, I've I I couldn't agree more, Daniel. I mean, I, I I was deep in thought listening to to your points there, and I I think that the universal ownership point really you know, struck the nail on the head there in terms of um, the scope of what it is uh, meant by investing uh, in you know according to sustainable principles and criteria. Um, I th- you know you agree that these things go back to you know the sustainability things are rather basically about work, making the world a better place. So. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's interesting to forget that. And but you also that the EU aspect uh, you referred to the Swiss experience of, you know, of aligning itself with uh, EU rules and regulations, obviously for market access with both third countries. Um, but topic-wise, it I was it was always around the OECD table. I was sort of surprised about how easy it was to incorporate these factors in civil law jurisdictions as opposed to common law like uh, like ourselves in the UK. But um, you talked about risks, and I just want to go back there. I, I realized that I'd probably Lost, missed something when we were talking about it earlier. We are talking about the drive of client demand into this area, and it was returns, that you know, the data points were lending itself. How much do you see uh, investors' concerns for risks being at the forefront of their mind? You know, you know, is it something they come and speak to you about? You talk about the EU's response of requirement for investor preferences. Um, how, much, uh, how much is that driving the agenda, do you think?
1: I think risk is an important driver and and even among clients or investors which are not fully convinced about sustainability, I think most of them they do recognize that, that the risk aspect is definitely something they are they want to cover. Um, And and COVID, of course, has has made it very obvious that we are facing some some risks um, in that sense. And if you look, for instance, also at the risk map of the World Economic Forum, which is published uh, once a year, uh, it was interesting to observe over the last 10, 15 years or so how sustainability related risks moved Up and up even more Uh, and and, and by now I think the five or six most important risks for the economy are all sustainability and particularly climate related but that was um, before COVID and uh, there's enough evidence uh, for for this by now in the beginning of the century mostly related to the G part of of ESG so the the governance part where it became clear that uh, you can run significant investment risks if you don't pay attention to let's say, independent boards, checks and balances, risks, oversight, business conduct policies, things like that. And then with more awareness for climate change, investors start to realize that um, there could be significant risks coming from that side, like described by the World uh, Economic Forum, physical risks, transition risks. And now with COVID, I think uh, many are waking up to an additional set of risks Uh, we mentioned some of them already like supply chain exposures or social risks so you could almost say that the the risk landscape comes in three waves we had governance first then triggered by climate change environment as, as, as the second set and now we have the social risks uh, as well and uh, if i if i talk to clients even if they do not have a particular interest in sustainability once i say are you interested in knowing what risks you have in your portfolio <laughs> uh, from a climate? yeah everybody's interested of course I mean, I mean why would you not not be interested for me personally i think we have both elements the opportunity part and the risk part uh, but let's say for uh, as, a, as an entry point uh, risk can often be the first step
0: yeah cool. i was sort of laughing there because sort of agreeing wholeheartedly with your comment in fact actually it's a podcast of listening and, and agreeing so there's so many things that you've said that i've just been nodding here safely and uh so sort of, and the, 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 obviously following the world what the world economic forum uh said is something that i think we've got very much in common and um actually one thing we um we discovered that we did have in common when we were preparing for this for this podcast was the fact that we, we have something we both have something in common with Dolph Lundgren. And I was wondering if you'd want to share with the listeners what that is and uh, you know how that relates to a small world. But I was wondering if you could maybe give listeners a, a bit of an insight to your background.
1: Yeah, sure. Yes, uh, we, we have uh, our background as chemical engineers that's in it. common, <laughs> <Yeah>. which <laughs> is uh, kind of a funny starting point, but um, also shows that as an engineer, you can do many different things and yeah. have interesting careers.
0: Uh, oh, so and that I was remembering, really the other one was Steve McQueen. Do you remember? You might no, know. I, I didn't know that actually. Yes, no, in, the, in, sure. in the film The Great Escape, Steve McQueen was a chemical engineer from the United States. So uh, there you
1: go. Excellent. Well, good to know. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, uh, no, I really grew into this topic, but um, maybe to give you a little bit of background, I, I was a teenager in the 80s, and, and I was passionate about two topics at that time, and that was the environment, uh, because we had problems with um, dying forests, the oceans, there was the nuclear energy discussions, we had famous accidents in Chernobyl and Schweizerhalle in Switzerland. So, environment was something that really... Um, was one passion of mine. And then the other one was what was going on in developing countries in the emerging market. So I, I wanted to do something which really moves the needle. And I thought engineering uh, is a good way to do that. And, and actually it was the water topic that kind of uh, became the, the, the guiding principle of, of, of my career. So I, I did a, a PhD in, in water technology at the ETH and then um, moved on to Stanford uh, for a postdoc on groundwater management. And finally, then had the chance to to combine the passion, environment and development cooperation in, in a role as engineer and consultant. So I, I worked for a Swiss company doing uh, water infrastructure projects uh, globally and then also worked three years for the Swiss government to lead infrastructure financing programs, partly in the Balkans and Kosovo, Macedonia, and so on, and also in Vietnam. And um, learned that it's not always about technology, as nice as engineering is, it's (laughs) also about having the right structures in place, management in place, you you need uh, sector reforms in many cases, Uh, and you need financing, right? And uh, so I I moved on then um, in 2006 to ProBico Sam, which is a pioneer in sustainable asset management. Again, through the water topics, I started um, as uh, a part of the water investment team. They run a large water investment fund and um, after 13 years, ended up as the co-CEO. And then a year ago, this opportunity opened up at Credit Suisse to bring my background to a large global player, which is, of course, super exciting for me because uh, my initial idea to move the needle uh, finally became true and I think we can do a lot here with Credit Suisse and uh, as you may have seen just um, last week, we announced even stronger commitment uh, to sustainability. We made some adjustments in the governance also to to better emphasise that commitment and we have quite ambitious targets.
0: Yes, David, um, it's amazing to see we. Yeah, Speaking with a person and an institution at the forefront of this field, it's, uh, it's a real, uh, it's a real honour. Thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. And um, but actually, I mean, it, talking about your background, it sort of lends itself. You've got a small board of expertise there, and a real, you know, obviously a real keen and um, genuine, heartfelt commitment to the area. Your your expertise is incredibly deep uh, and amazing, and. Um, but we sort of I was party to some research, and it's our experience too, both both in Guernsey and you know in other centres. I think that that experience in uh, across the field in sustain, sustainability is is very deep in some areas, but the breadth of it across institutions and across others. Um, it, it, it is, not a, it is not as correspondingly uh, broad as it were. And so I think Tan Kwan, who's in conversation with her, you know, my American patriot in Zurich, she flagged up that there's concerns with skill shortages. And I was part of a, uh, a briefing done by Deloitte that was shortly published, talking about uh, future skills gap in this area. And that I think it was something like 30 to 40% of the institutions were flagging up that the lack of skills in sustainable finance would be seen as a strategic issue for their, for their firms. Do you see that as a growing issue? I mean, we've talked about supply of, of, of services or of products in one area, but sorry, supply of products in one area. But do you think the the ability to provide service and, and this, this skills gap being a growing issue?
1: Yeah, look, it's certainly not not easy to find experts or enough experts at this point in time at that interface of sustainability and finance. And one reason maybe is also that for, for a very long time, uh, you either had experts in in sustainability or sustainability related fields or in finance but not necessarily people who were able to to bridge that gap now in the meantime the the curricula have been adjusted Uh, you can now study sustainable finance or even in in financial trainings you have sustainability integrated but it will take a a while until this really comes through Uh, so it's not unusual to find people like myself in the industry which start on on very strongly on one side like engineering and then add additional skills on the financial side or people who go in the other direction and, and what i like is we have a lot of young smart people with passion for the topic and and they are willing uh, to learn and they even ask us when in, in, in interviews right what we do about it so it plays a really important role for them also uh, in in their career but they have to be trained that's clear um but maybe one also one thought in in that direction if we really say that sustainability is the new normal Uh, This is not just a niche or a side business or something where we need a a handful of experts to run it for the bank, right? We want to transform the organization. We want to integrate ESG in everything we are doing, which means we don't want to replace the workforce, but we want to transform the organization and therefore also transform the people in the organization. So I don't think we need only sustainable finance experts. We need to make sure that all the functions we have start embracing the topic. And of course, you need um, some experts to, to drive it and, and to make it work. But at the end of the day, um, you can approach the topic through all the expertise that we already have.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I could agree more. I mean, you know, s- sustainability is basically the golden thread by which we. Uh, which we approach the world uh, and particularly in the financial field going forward. So right
1: look, I would even be fine if we don't call it sustainability anymore in, in, in 10 years, right? It's That's... just the, the good way, to, the, the right way to run a business in the interest of our clients. And if the original uh, indicator came from something called ESG database or financial database, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the the, the objective remains the same.
0: Absolutely. And that's I feel, that's a, a really good future think point to, um, to end on there, Daniel. It just remains to I, I mean, yeah, to summarize there, I think, you know, we, we touched on the fact it could be a generational thing, this thing, and it is the generation that take the baton on, you know, talking about uh, the the generational transfer of wealth, but also maybe the generational transfer of expertise. I mean, I've discovered many things today. So, thank you like One of the things that how much we have in common, I'm, I'm not going to ask you if you had a mullet in the 80s like that, myself or your or pop interest takes, but um, it was on shucks, uh, back in our day, I, I guess. Um, and the other thing to take away is, you know, from, you know, from, from listening to you today is, is that front and center, that you know, sustainability. It's, it is a way of doing things now rather than just a, an element on the sidelines, particularly post COVID where listening to you, it's, it has almost been that tipping point of, you know, going from, you know, nearly there, nearly there to, you no, know, it's, it's there now. This is the, this is the, the, the brave new world, as it were. And also to take away from our conversation the fact that you know, this ESG sustainability and this, you know, this, this fiduciary duty is, um, you know, it is all-encompassing, and I really did appreciate that you know this, this concept of universal ownership to encapsulate what it is that everyone's sitting out to achieve. They were all stewards. Um, of, of the global you, know, you go back to the, the day that you know sustainability is, is broadly ensuring there is a you know enough resources and everything for the next generation to meet their needs so it's been fantastic and finally i suppose you know we're coming back to the the naked commercialism of, the, 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 in terms of our clients and your clients that the in terms of the private wealth arena um it is now become very much front and center of the um the method of investing the, the requirements from clients and the returns and the risks they're looking at um, and it, you know if uh, it's been a pleasure just to you know you know confirm some of uh, my thoughts today but also learn learn much else besides so daniel i just end at that point it's been a pleasure you've been an absolute star um you know really looking forward to catching up sometime um, soon when you, you know normalcy in terms of travel uh, and, uh, and etc. returns um But thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, Daniel.
1: Thanks a lot, Andy. The pleasure was on my side as well.